Well, I want to encourage you to turn again, if you would, to the book of Hebrews, and then the, the second chapter, Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, I'll be begin reading in verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 2, down through verse 8 this morning. Hebrews uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that thou remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not see, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Now let us pray. Father, thank you so much for the the praise and the worship we have enjoyed this morning. We thank you so much for the privilege we have to come and worship you and praise you and glory in thee. And thank you for your holy word and the common precious salvation we have in the Lord of glory. And I would pray these moments again for your Holy Spirit's assistance and help to convey your holy revelation uh, to those who are here this morning. I, I pray that you would give us understanding. I, I pray that you would give us ears to, to hear what you would have for us. I pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our heart to embrace what you have conveyed to us in your holy scripture. And so I pray for reliance on thee. I pray it would redound to thy glory. I pray it would be for the good of our souls. I pray it would be a, a special preparation of our hearts and souls as we consider the glory of what your son has done for us on the cross. So just pray that you would unite the rest of our time together and may it all be for your honor and your glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's possible um, that you have been to or maybe just read of certain places where the word ruins uh, is used uh, to designate maybe a, an ancient building or a temple or uh, an amphitheater of some kind. And there, there retains enough of the original structure and structural integrity that uh, one might say it really must have been something in its day or in its time. And, and maybe because of age or bombing or neglect or vandalism, um, it, it's been robbed of its initial magnificence, but what remains gives some sense of its past glory. It was an amazing structure, but that is not the case anymore. Now it lies in, in ruins. I believe it's right to say that such is the case with uh, mankind in the world in which we now live, in which we now inhabit. Uh, God's initial design and plan is found in these words from Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. 
And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So man clearly was to have dominion over the earth and subdue it. Um, but since the fall of man and the entrance of sin, that intention has not been realized. Um, there's a sense in which the world that we live in now, the present world, is in ruins compared to what it was and compared to God's initial intention. Sin is something like a bomb that has dropped on a city and it's had devastating effects. So the consequence of Adam's sin has really changed everything. Uh, one author put it like this. The ground originally produced good things, naturally and abundantly, for man to have for the taking. Now it produces thorns, weeds, and other harmful things, naturally and abundantly. Whatever good things man now gets from the earth come only through tiresome effort, extremes of heat and cold, poisonous plants and reptiles, earthquakes, tornadoes, floods, hurricanes, disease, war. All these were released upon man after the fall. Virtually everything God had given for man's good and blessing became his enemy. And man has been fighting a losing battle ever since. For millennia, he himself has been dying. Now he's finding out that the earth is dying with him. Amazingly, the earth itself knows its condition. Romans 8, 19, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. So instead of the earth being subject to man, man is subject to earth. Uh, He writes, he plants, but he is not sure who will reap. He builds cities and houses and dams and monuments, but they are all subject to destruction by lightning or earthquake or flood or fire or erosion or, or simply aging. And, and man now, instead of enjoying the assurance of eternal life and healthy life, really lives in jeopardy every hour uh, at the pinnacle of his professional achievement. He can contact a debilitating disease that robs him of his mental powers um, an athlete at the pinnacle of his or her career may, may suffer an injury that, that ends all of their dreams. And instead of ruling over brute creation, in some sense, it rules over us. John Calvin said, The wild beasts ferociously attack us. Those who ought to be awed by our presence are dreaded by us. Uh, some never obey us. Others can hardly be trained to submit. And they do us harm in various ways. In other words, as a human being, we can't just walk into the jungle and expect lions and tigers to respect us because God created them and this was his initial, initial plan. In fact, many of us, you can't even get your dog to obey you and do what he said, let alone the local mountain lion. So the entrance of sin changed everything. Um, it's no longer a paradise possessed and enjoyed. It's really more of a paradise lost. The world that we live in, it's, it's, it's a broken reflection of God's original plan and design. And in light of, this, of that, this section, I think, is very helpful and instructive to our thinking process. And, and it helps us to see uh, man's original dignity and intended dominion over creation was lost. It was lost because of Adam's sin and will be recovered and restored through union with the second Adam, Christ, in the world to come. In other words, that's really all I want to say today. Now, I'm going to take a while to say it. But let me just run that by you one more time. This is the main thought I wanted to kind of get across this morning. Man's original dignity and intended dominion over creation, it was lost. It was lost because of Adam's sin. It will be recovered and restored through union with the second Adam, Christ, in the world to come. Or to put it more succinctly, God's purpose 
for man will only be fully realized in the world to come. So in verses 5 through 8 of Hebrews chapter 2, it helps us to understand how this restoration process takes place as it relates to man's future glorious destiny. And it does so in at least three different ways that we'll consider this morning. First of all, I would have you notice there's a clarification of the role of angelic beings in the world to come. A clarification of the role that angels will have in the world to come. Thinking here of the import of verse 5. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. You might recall the focus in chapter 1 was the superiority of our Lord over angels. Then in chapter 2 in verses 1 through 4, there's this very sober warning not to neglect so great a salvation. Then in chapter 2 and verse 5 and following, the writer returns to this theme of angels and especially their role in the world to come. Uh, Notice the phrase, concerning which we are speaking, that's present tense. And really what it does, it makes clear what the subject at hand is. It's like, what are we talking about here? And the answer is the world to come. Not this world, but especially the world to come. That's the focus, that's the theme. Same kind of emphasis is seen in what was read in our hearing this morning, Ephesians 1.21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And in 1 Timothy 4.8, bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Let us offer four, uh, under this first heading, four further comments about the significance of the world to come. First of all, this is just really restating what the text has to say. Uh, The world to come will not be subject to angels. That's the point of the phrase, for he did not subject to angels the world to come. The term means uh, to subjugate, uh, to make subservient, or to subdue. Secondly, we might ask the question, why was some... Uh, their need to even address this issue about the role of angels in the world to come. Why did that even need to be brought up? Well, I think the answer is because angelic beings do have great power and influence in this world. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, in his work, wrote to angelic beings, the, the present world has been entrusted for administration, but not so the world to come. And now, some commentators feel that the initial readers may have been influenced by the the Greek translation of Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 8, which reads like this, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the children of men, he set the bounds of the peoples according to the number of the angels of God. He set the bounds of the peoples according to the number of the angels of God. But, but be that as it may, if you get a chance later on to read uh, in Daniel chapter 10, Um, There's a heavenly messenger that brings Daniel news of great conflict. And the messenger let Daniel know that he had come in response to Daniel's desire to understand a vision and that Daniel's words were heard. And then in verse 13 of that chapter, uh, this heavenly messenger indicates that the prince of the kingdom of Persia, another heavenly being, withstood him. And he goes on and and adds that this conflict lasted for 21 days, and then Michael, another chief prince, came to help him. So the idea is, I got your message, and I I wanted to come, but I was held up for 21 days because of this conflict with the prince of the kingdom of Persia. 
And further, he tells Daniel um, that he's going to have to leave and fight against the prince of Persia, and after that, against the prince of Greece. So the language like that, the prince of Persia, the prince of Greece, one of the chief princes, um, and then Michael, that suggests there's a kind of a territorial influence and as well as rank. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce wrote, in a number of places, some at least of these angelic governors are portrayed as hostile principalities and powers, the world rulers of this present darkness we read of in Ephesians chapter 6. And of course, you know, Satan himself is an angelic being. He's referred to as the God of this world. But the force of our text, in light of all that, is that the world to come will not be subjected to angels. They will not have that kind of influence in the world to come. And then thirdly, I would just have you note... Um, this concept of the, of the world to come, especially as you flow through the rest of the book of Hebrews, it corresponds to the age to come in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 5, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and to the, the city which is to come in Hebrews 13, 14. Here, we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come, and also to the kingdom which cannot be shaken in twelve twenty eight. So the world to come has an affinity with the age to come, uh, the city which which is to come, the kingdom which cannot be shaken. And then in the fourth place, just a, a helpful quote I found from William Lane that I wanted to uh, share with you. He writes, the expression, world to come, it anticipates the consummation when every relationship will reflect the sovereignty of God's Son. It, it reflects the future time when every relationship will reflect the sovereignty of God's Son. Now, the sovereignty of God's Son is not readily apparent in the times that we live in. All Christians really should believe that because to become a Christian, you have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And, uh, and that's, reflected, that's reflected in the relationships that we have with other Christian believers. You might be traveling on an airplane and you sit next to somebody you've never met before and they're reading their Bible and you find out they're an evangelical Christian. You talk to them for a while and you find out there's a mutual persuasion of the sovereignty of the Son. Um, but then there's many other relationships that we have in this world where that's not the case. Uh, the common ground can be political ideology or a sports team or a hobby, but nothing close to a mutual persuasion of the sovereignty of the Son. But in the world to come, every single relationship will reflect uh, a, a persuasion of the sovereignty of the Son and will glory in that reality as well. So in the first place, there's a, a clarification of the role of angelic beings here in the world to come. Secondly, there's a confirmation about the restoration of man in the world to come. And turn here, if you would, to Psalm chapter 8. We'll be reading from that in a moment. So turn, if you would, to Psalm chapter 8. Um, <clears throat> to, make, um, to make his point, the author of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. Now, in Hebrews chapter 2, the quotation begins um, in verse 6, what is man? And it ends in verse 8, thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. That's from Psalm chapter 8, verses 4 through 6. The, the theme of Psalm 8 is the Lord's glory and man's dignity. And I want to read to you, I'm going to start in verse 3 of Psalm chapter 8 and read down through verse 7. And keep in mind, it's verses 4 through 6 that is found in our text in Hebrews chapter 2. But Psalm chapter 8, beginning in verse 3, this is the psalm of David. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon, and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou dost take thought of him, and the son of man that thou dost care for him? 
Yet thou hast made him a little lower than God, and dost crown him with glory and majesty. Thou dost make him to rule over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. So, so David here, he's profoundly affected with the expression of the glory of God's greatness that is displayed in creation. In this particular case, it's a, it's a sight, you pre, we presume, a clear night where, uh, of the moon and the abundance of the stars, and it makes him feel inconsequential. And he's reflecting upon this, and he's, uh, he's amazed that a God like this, a vast, amazing, powerful God, would consider man and think about man and have a concern for him. And in the sense of amazement, it encompasses the dignity accorded to man. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor, and the responsibility that is given to him, thou hast make him to rule over the works of thy hand. That's elaborated on in verses 7 and 8. So this harmonized with what we read back in Genesis chapter 1. Let me just reread a part of that. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let him rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Well, as noted, um, this this intention um, did not work because it was short-circuited by sin. Now, what may seem a little bit surprising to us in this particular text, uh, at first glance, the, the introduction to this quotation, I would suggest that the author of, pre, of, uh, of Hebrews doesn't know where this is found in the Old Testament. He begins by saying, but one has testified somewhere saying, I mean, we don't do that. I mean, we try to memorize scripture. This is, you know, Ephesians 4, 5 or whatever. He, but he says, um, someone has testified somewhere saying, I know it's somewhere in the Old Testament. It's like if you lose a piece of jewelry, a wallet or a watch or something. And I know it's in the house. I just don't know where. I know it's somewhere. But the issue here, it's not ignorance. It's rather a persuasion that what is important is that God said it. It's in his pure, holy revelation. That's its authority. The human author is relatively insignificant. So I'm persuaded that the author's point in quoting this psalm, it's not so much to emphasize how David was amazed with God's creation, but it is to show that the kind of dignity and responsibility man was originally given and he lost through sin, that will be restored in the world to come, which will consist of the new heaven and the new earth. This confirmation of future restoration, it's enhanced, I think, by at least three factors here. Number one, the restoration, it will include the subjugation of all things to redeemed humanity. It will include the subjugation of all things to redeemed humanity. Now, the last line that's quoted in verse 8, now I'm in, in Hebrews chapter 2, it says, You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, it's clear that's not the case now. In this world, um, creation is not in subjection to man now, but it will be. And notice also, it's comprehensive. Uh, you have put all things under his feet. Now, it's very important to realize here that this subjugation of all things 
to redeem man. It's a derived kind of sovereignty in the future. Um, this, same, same, this particular quote is applied at least twice to the person of Christ in the New Testament. One in Ephesians 1.22, he put all things in subjection under his feet. This is also from Psalm chapter 8. Here it's applied to Christ. It's applied to him also in 1 Corinthians 15.27, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. Well, then, secondly, the certainty of this future subjection of all things to man that has redeemed humanity, it's, uh, it's underscored by the rest of the verse. It's emphasized by the rest of the verse. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. That is, it enforces the certainty of this future event by a double negative. He left nothing, on the one hand, that is not subject to him. And then a, a third factor that underscores not only the certainty, but the glory of this future restoration, and I hope this makes sense. Third factor that underscores not only the certainty, but the glory of this future restoration to redeem man is the interpretive challenge about um, which I have said nothing up to this point, uh, but I found to be quite challenging. And you're thinking, well, what is the interpretive challenge here, Doug? Commentators are really divided on whether these verses from Psalm chapter 8 in Hebrews, should they be applied to man or should they be applied to Christ? There's a great division of thought about that. Some, some feel they should be applied to man. Others feel these verses should be applied to the person of Christ. Should, should the verses from Psalm 8 quoted here be understood in a messianic way and applied to Christ and not man? Now, I've taken um, this quotation that's in Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 5 through 8 to apply in particular to man's future restoration. Now, part of that is because in Psalm 8, it clearly refers to man, and the quotation here really replicates that same sense. But it would be very easy and very understandable to take it here as referring to the person of Christ, because Son of Man in verse 6 is a messianic title that Christ applies to himself. If you get a chance to read Daniel 7, 13, and 14, it's a messianic title. Um, Phrases like... um, you have made him a little lower than the angels. Could apply to man in this world. He has a lower status and authority than angels. Or it could apply to the person of Christ. He was made lower than the angels when he was in this world. And his glory was obscured. His, his deity was obscured while he was in this world. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor. I could point to man's exalted position. He's king of creation. Or it could refer to the exaltation of the person of Christ to the right hand of God the Father which is clearly stated in verse 9 of Hebrews chapter 2. Now, I've taken the the position that this quotation fundamentally applies to redeem man and his future restoration for two reasons. Number one, clearly in the initial setting in Psalm 8, it's a declaration about the dignity of man and God's care for him and the responsibility accorded to him. Secondly, it's reproduced here to show that this purpose for man will be fully restored and realized in the world to come. I I think that's the author's purpose in quoting from here. But thirdly, it's imperative to realize that man's glorious destiny will only be realized by union with the person of Christ, who's the ultimate fulfillment of all these activities. He is the one who's exalted to the right hand of God the Father. He is the one who will put all enemies under his feet. So this is true of man, but only because he is in union with the person of Christ. As B.F. Westcott put it, it is not and has never been accounted by the Jews to be directly messianic, 
It is expressing the true destiny of man. It finds its accomplishment in the Son of Man, Jesus, and only through him in man. So, so Christ is the one who is sovereign and supreme, and, and he's sovereign without limitation. Well, then, thirdly, um, there's an explanation about the delay of this restoration in the world to come. Sometimes flights are delayed, sometimes orders are delayed. There's a delay of this restoration to man, to this place that he was originally intended. I'm thinking about the, the words, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. We look around, it's not that way now. Man's glorious destiny of being restored to God's initial intention it's brought out, but, but it's not yet come to fruition. We look around our world and morally and spiritually, it looks a whole lot more like paradise lost than paradise regained. And we read about the lion and the lamb in the Old Testament, somewhere in the Old Testament, dwelling together, but that's certainly not true in this world. It will be true in the world to come. Um, over the last several years, we have, when we get out of town for a few days, I have a uh, Instead of just driving day after day after day, we have uh, rented houses through Verbo Vacation Rental by owner. And, and overall, that's worked out pretty well for us. Um, the strategy that I employ is I, I read reviews of everybody who stayed there. And if it's all five-star reviews, that's usually a pretty good sign. And, and you find phrases like, the pictures don't do it justice. It's, it's better than that. However, there, there are some homes that have a lot of bad reviews and you read things like the home was not clean, the neighborhood wasn't safe, uh, communication with the owner was terrible, the hot tub didn't work, the pool was cold, cold, the beds were uncomfortable, and on it goes. I mean, the idea there, it's more like the pictures don't do us justice. It was worse than what the pictures look like. And, and what you read about and what you experience are two different things. And we read here about man's glorious destiny, and we look around and we realize this is not yet. It's not yet the way that it is. And the point here is there is a delay, and the reason for a delay is we live in the overlap of the ages. The kingdom has been inaugurated with the coming of Christ. It will be consummated when he returns. And in the meantime, we live in what theologians call the already, but the not yet. It has not yet been fully realized, but we're fully assured of this future restoration. I think the explanation of this delay is helpful in at least two different ways. Number one, the reality of this delay that the text points out accounts for the perpetual existence of mockers in this world. The ongoing existence of people who deride and mock Christianity and what we stand for, but their hope... It's not future restoration, it's future condemnation. Peter put it like this. Notice, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. And, and secondly, the persuasion in our souls, the persuasion of a certain future restoration through union with Christ, it does produce a real sincere anticipation for the return of the Lord and the consummation of all things, because nothing is going to change until that happens. 
I mean, sin is going to continue. We're going to live in paradise lost until the return of the person of Christ. And Peter puts it like this. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And let us pray, shall we? Father, we thank you this day for the, the glory of the gospel, the power of the gospel, the certainty of what you have done for us and in us. We thank you that you have delivered us from the kingdom that is dominated by the enemy, the God of this world. You've delivered us from darkness to light, and you've given us the certain hope of this future glorious restoration to your initial intention. We thank you for your plan. We thank you that there's no force that can thwart what you have determined to do for us through your son. And we thank you for that and pray as we make a, a transition of thought here that you would continue to help us and minister your grace to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.